Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the digital team at SavannahNow.com, this is Difference Makers, a podcast featuring interviews with Savannah's community leaders about what they do, how they do it, and why. I'm Adam Van Brummer, and joining me for the July 10th episode is local hospitality industry insider Michael Owens of the Tourism Leadership Council, or TLC. Difference Makers is presented by the Savannah Economic You know their names, you know the organizations and businesses that they lead, you might even know their faces, but do you know why they are Difference Makers? This is Difference Makers, a podcast presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority and dedicated to highlighting Savannah's key players and their contributions to our community. Difference Makers hail from several sectors, including commerce, government, education, arts and culture, and philanthropy. Again, my name is Adam Van Bremer, and I am the editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. Thank you for listening. Today's guest is Michael Owens, a leader in Savannah's business community, specifically the tourism business, a sector currently in the midst of a severe downturn due to the fallout from the coronavirus pandemic. Here's the Difference Makers interview with Michael Owens. Joined on the latest episodes of Difference Makers by Michael Owens, who is the president and CEO of the Savannah Area Tourism Leadership Council, basically an advocacy group and that does a lot of training, does a lot of lobbying, does everything they can do to support uh, hospitality businesses and hospitality workers here in Savannah. And I thought it was an appropriate time to get Michael on because as we may or may not be seeing the, the waning days of the coronavirus, at least for the summer, we are starting to see tourism and hospitality pick back up to a certain extent. And Michael and I are going to talk a little bit about that, what that looks like. But as we always do on Difference Makers, we like to let you, the listeners, get to know our guest a little bit better. And so, Michael, let's start there. I know the native Georgian, but not necessarily a native Savannah. Can you kind of fill us in on your background? Yeah, I uh, grew up in Atlanta. I've had family here in Savannah for generations. And I had the, the good fortune of spending my summers here as a kid. And uh, I like to say that I, I wasn't born in Savannah, but I got here as quick as I could. Um, so uh, in the winter of 99, I uh, made my home downtown, and uh, I've been proud to call Savannah home ever since. When you were coming as a kid, where were you, were you downtown? Were you Tybee? What, uh, where were you? Yeah, so when I, was, um, when I was a kid, it was downtown. Of course, downtown looked very, very different back then. Very different. This was the the 80s and and uh i gotta tell you what we what we see today versus what i saw when i was growing up are two very different pictures um i remember uh, even when i came here to savannah in 99 um and i got a historic home and about half of jones street was renovated back then half Mm -hmm. that was 99 um we were just Starting our, our economic revival, and uh, I think that that's in, in due um, to a lot of different factors. Um, there's the tourism side, there is SCAD, there is other industries, manufacturing, the ports, the growth thereof. You know, I've always believed that our economy in Savannah is a puzzle, 
And there are a lot of different pieces to that puzzle. And certainly tourism is one of those pieces, if not one of the larger pieces. Right. I was saying in the 1980s, by then, Historic Savannah was doing their thing. SCAD had opened. And I know you're just a kid, but did you kind of get an inkling then of, of what was what was underneath the surface and what the potential could be? I think I always felt that, and still do, that Savannah is just a special place. It's um, and for different people, it's it's special for different reasons. Um, I, I my family always revered history, and my dad was a an amateur history buff, and and we read a lot and heard a lot of stories. And um, I remember taking tours as a kid, just being amazed. There was a there's a um, a building that's pretty close by to where I where I first lived when I came downtown. That's now a Christmas shop, and mm-hmm. to find out that it was the first Ford dealership in America. <laughs> and that was right there. I just thought that was so cool. And, and you know, in the, in the 20 years that I lived downtown, um, I remembered when I moved here, I made a promise to myself, which I maintained to this day, that I would never take it for granted. Right. That every opportunity I would have, I would take an extra minute in my walk through a square, you know, to go about to a meeting or, or, or to a restaurant. And I would just stop and try to see something I haven't seen before. And I've, I've been here for, for more than 20 years now, and I see something new or notice something new every day. Yeah. And I learn just a little bit more about our history or something significant that happened or, or you know, even uh, sometimes that interpretation changes. Um, what we thought we knew was not accurate. And now you take the, the, the issue with Casimir uh, Pulaski, right? What our yeah. understanding of, of what history was changed all of a sudden. And I think that's fascinating, too. Um, I, I, it's, it's the aesthetic, it's the feel, it's the smell. Savannah has a certain odor to, to, to me that I just love. It means I'm home and I have to go to Atlanta fairly frequently for, for, uh, as a result of my, my, uh, my profession. And I just adore coming home and smell. When I was a kid, my mom, my mom and dad used to laugh. Um, cause when we drove into Savannah in my mom's old station wagon, she said, I would always say from the back seat, I smell that smell. We must be in Savannah. And <laughs> even today, she references, I smell that smell, right? Yeah. So yeah. When, I, when I moved here, someone taught mill. me what that – that's right. <laughs> that's, that's, someone taught me the saying, it's old money in the paper mill. And, and uh, you know, even sayings like that, I think, has a lot to do with our, our, our culture and um, who we are as, as – as uh, Savannians, and I just think that, you know, I don't, I, I can't get that anywhere else. And the quality of life that I've always enjoyed here is just so much better than Atlanta. Right. You know, when I go to the dry cleaners to drop off my clothes, no one asks me about how I want my shirts done. They yeah. ask me about my kids that they know right. by name, and I ask them about theirs that I know about, name, you know, and how they did in their last test in school. That is a quality of life that is difficult to find elsewhere, um, and, and it's certainly not, not easy to find in Atlanta. So um, this is where I chose to live, and I was married in this town, and my children are being raised in this town, and I just think that we're the luckiest people in the world. What was there to do in downtown Savannah as a kid in the 1980s? Did you, did you play in the squares? Oh, did absolutely you... nothing. Yeah, listen, no. there was there was just there was nothing to do. I remember um, there was sort of a, a what now we might call sort of a pedicab slash quadricycle thing. Um, there was this four seater bicycle contraption that. <laughs> 
uh, I haven't seen since the 80s. And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And I convinced my mom and my grandmother to let us ride around in one of those things and rent it. Mm-hmm. And it was just the coolest as a kid. It was like the coolest way you could go around town. Of course, I, I had no inclination of cobblestones and those little <laughs> bike contraptions. Um, but you know, for, for a kid who was maybe seven or eight years old, um, I, I wasn't worried about it. It was a, it was a short tour. I don't mind telling you that, um, and I don't remember exactly how it ended, but I was told that we were probably not allowed to go over there. So we did, the, the tour had to end. So it was a, a short lived thing. Um, I remember when I moved here in 99, um, I mean, and again, that seems like yesterday to me and it should to everybody cause it almost was yesterday, you know, there, if if you wanted to go out to eat on Sunday, there were like three restaurants. Right, there just wasn't yeah. anything else open. And and right. and if you you know, I I was in the a hotel business shortly after I came here, and we would have a guest that would walk to the to the desk and say, "Well, we would like to go someplace to eat tonight, or, or uh, you know, where do we go?" And it was easy. You had three restaurants to choose from on a, on a Sunday night. Or a guest would say, "Well, what we'd like to take a tour," and we'd look at them and say, "Oh, no, ma'am, it's Sunday. We don't have tours on Sunday." <laughs> and you know, fast forward twenty years, it's a very for you know for, for it's, it's different almost everywhere. And there's more restaurants, there's more attractions, and and to me that as a resident, as a downtown resident, that added to my livability. There were more places now. Certainly, there was the place that I was always going to go, which was Crystal Beer Parlor. It was right down the street from yeah, me. That's absolutely. where my parents went. It's where my grandparents went. Crystal Beer Parlor. It was crab stew and a little loaf of cornbread, and you were all done. That's all you needed mm-hmm. to survive in the world. And, you know, I knew it was going to go this, but when new places opened up, it was fun. It was exciting to go. It was, um, you know, it was it was just something fresh and new, and it was welcomed. And, and now I think a lot of us, either we have taken that for granted, and, and that's understandable, or the folks that have moved here in the last couple of years – they just don't have any sense that Savannah wasn't always like this. Right. And Savannah was always a wonderful community. It was different, but it and it's always been special. But I, I especially see uh, with our new neighbors and, and friends that come in, you know, they visited here the first time two years ago. They fell in love and they moved and they don't realize the 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 enormous amount of work and the troubles and strife that we had to to go through to build to what so many people are enjoying today. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 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 that's quite an insight. So before we dig a little bit deeper into that, let's stay with you for another minute and talk about, obviously Savannah was an influence on you as a young man. What about, what about other influences? Obviously you ended up going into the hospitality industry. Did you have that in your family? Did somebody, did you go to a hotel once and just get awestruck and say, that's what I want to do for a living? You know, it's 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 interesting. Um, it was nothing I'd ever studied. It was nothing that I was ever interested in, other than my older brother and I, who were very close in age. And my my dad started his own business when I was young, and that was very difficult. And he ended up being a great success in in his field. Um, my mom was in a great position with HCA hospitals and was a a, a very well respected social worker and and became a senior administrator in the hospital. And she decided one day that she wanted to be a pediatric nurse. Oh, and wow. she just, it was, it was, I, I, I was so young that I couldn't necessarily give you all the reasoning behind that, but it was something that was clearly in her heart. So she quit work 
And she went to nursing school as a grown adult, and that's what she wanted to do. Um, that was financially difficult for my family, to say the least. Um, mm-hmm. um, dad was, mom was the was the breadwinner for the family while dad was starting the business, and um, and then she all of a sudden stopped and went to school. So it was it was tight, and and um, um, we. My older brother and I um, stuck together a lot more. We started cooking together, and we mm-hmm. would cook for the family, and that was just sort of seen as, as something we could do to help. And we did chores, and we cleaned the house and stuff like that because mom and dad were struggling to put food on the table. And right. so we started cooking a lot, and it's something that we've maintained throughout our whole life. Um, to this day, probably the greatest thing outside of spending time with my own wife and children is with I'm, when I'm with my brothers. Uh, I have a younger brother, too, um, which was not around at the time. And we open up a bottle of wine or, better yet, a bottle of whiskey, and we start cooking. And we cook together. And in, in my family, it's not uncommon that Thanksgiving, the entire meal, if we're lucky enough to all be together, um, the entire meal is done by the three brothers um, from okay. beginning to end. And we love it. It's time that we have together. It's time that we're all bonding. I'm still very close with my brothers, um, even though we live uh, far apart now. Um, well, I say far apart. They're all in Atlanta. They didn't secede when I did. Um, so that part of it is, uh, you know, my, my great uncle who I named my son after, um, my great uncle told me that art was formed, constituted by experience as a, as a means to communicate Mm -hmm. and that food was art and it's constituted by experience that you have in the kitchen and it's a means to communicate. And that communication is love. And when you're providing for a meal for someone, it's a very Italian thing. And I have no Italian background. It's all Scottish and my Scottish and German in my family. Um, but there's something even to this day is, you know, even if, if I come home and my wife's had a really rough day and I make dinner, it's to me, it's still the care that I put in trying to make a perfect dinner or a perfect steak or perfect piece of chicken for her is no one else may notice, but there's a lot of, of, I want this perfect for her because she's had a rough day or she's done this with the kids. Um, that spirit I think has always been there. And I think it developed with my older brother, Robert and, so a, a life of service, which is what we do consider the hospitality industry, it's not wrong to say it's the service industry, that's always been there. And um, I've, I've been engaged in it most of my life. Um, I remember sort of getting my first junior management position and then a senior management position. And I started at the bottom like almost everybody else in my industry. Um, I've, I've parked cars, I've, I've run bar tending, uh, bar backs, uh, I've washed dishes. It's, it's just a part of, it's a part of our industry. Um, but someone asked me, uh, a friend from Atlanta and said, well, what is it you do now? And I said, well, at the end of the day, I, I'm paid to make somebody happy. Right. And, and it was in my career that I, I discovered to me the most important thing that we get in hospitality and it's pretty extraordinary and 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 i try to talk about it as much as i can especially with younger kids in the field that are coming up the most important responsibility we have in this industry is time and other people pay us for the thing i can't give back so they come to my hotel or they come to my restaurant to celebrate their 25th anniversary or there it's a girl's weekend trip to celebrate one of the ladies successful bout against cancer. If I mess that up, if somebody on my team messes that up, I can't ever give that memory back. There's no amount of 
free dessert or a comped room that's ever going to make that okay for the rest of their life. You know, if it's their 25th anniversary, they're going to remember that horrible experience they had in such and such a place that they had on their 25th. And they're going to remember that every single anniversary, every birthday, every, you know, and so it is to, to me and, and to others who take my field very seriously and who are good at it. It's this extraordinary thing. If someone is paying you to give them their time to create a memory, I, I, I take that really seriously. And so that's why we strive for the perfection that we do. And, you know, t- truth be told, we don't, we don't know the situation of all our guests. We don't even know the situation of half of our guests, right? And, and, and sometimes we try to ask, oh, what's the reason for your visit? But, you know, you never know when you're serving a person that this, this is their big hurrah after getting a, free, uh, a, a cancer-free screening. Yeah. So you have to treat everybody as if their time is the most valuable thing because it is. It's the only thing that I can't give back to somebody if I've messed it up. And that, I think, is a important aspect of our industry. And if you don't have a heart of service, if you're not willing to supplicate your, your, your own ego or needs or something like that in service to somebody else, you won't make it in this industry. Or if you look at it in, in, a, in a poor light, which is, well, you are subservient to this person. No, I'm not subservient. I get to do this. I get to make somebody's 50th wedding anniversary the most remarkable experience they've ever had in the city that I truly adore. I get to share what makes Savannah special to me and my family with somebody else. And nothing makes me smile bigger than that. It's for me, it's deeply personal and it is to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people in my industry. There is pride in our service to others. We are speaking with Michael Owens of the Tourism Leadership Council on this episode of the Difference Makers podcast. Before we continue our discussion, let's pause and recognize the Difference Makers presenting sponsor and a real difference maker in our community, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. The team at CETA is pushing to make Savannah a great place to work and live. CETA is committed to growing, creating, and attracting jobs and investment in the Savannah area. Whether a business looking to relocate to Savannah or an existing business ready to grow and expand, CETA is the centrifuge of a propeller, making the connections, helping propel the business to success. Learn more about the Savannah Economic Development Authority and what they do in the Savannah community by visiting CETA.org. Now back to the TLC's Owens. Tell me a little bit more about the, your, your personal journey. Obviously, you said you know you attended bar, you parked cars, uh, and all of that. You, you come to Savannah, were you working in hotels, and then how did you go from there to being uh, involved with the TLC? Yeah, so I, I um, got the great fortune to work with um, a local company here. They owned um, and own uh, several bed and breakfasts and um, larger properties, and they were actually around the southeast of the United States. It was, uh, was and is a family-owned company of just truly remarkable people, and I have relationship with all of them still to this day. Um, they are extraordinary people. They care about their employees, they care about the community that they 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 work and serve in. Um, I was really fortunate that I got connected to a great company 
here in Savannah. And as they gave me the opportunity to mature, and I worked for the opportunity to mature, um, it's a tough business. You, you know, it's it's likely if you're going to go someplace in my business, um, you're going to miss a couple of Christmases, or at least you'll have to have Christmas the night before, or the day, or the morning of. You know, and then you get into a position of management where you know really you can take Christmas at home, but you don't. Right. You end up taking ham to to the hotel. Right. And having make sure they have a good Christmas too. Those are things that should hopefully come naturally after time. Um, I got involved in the TLC in a, in a board member capacity, um, I want to say in 2007. And what I was interested in at that time as an operator working on behalf of an ownership company um, was their, the that board's interest for really trying to make a difference in our industry and trying to offer more support to individual employees and people, you know, whether it was scholarships or training and education, which is something we still carry to this day as a mission, um, but also becoming more involved civically as a unit, um, as, as a, a, a community sector of, of an important part of the economy that was growing by leaps and bounds. It was becoming more important to the city, whether you were in tourism or not. Right. The, the money that were being generated was, was really important. And, and to be perfectly candid with you, I, I said, you know, look, I, I don't have time for more friends. Uh, <laughs> we're all busy in this industry. I want to be involved with an organization that really wants to do something and, right. and that wants to be a part of, of improvement of our industry, even if it's very internally facing, which it was at that time. Um, so I served on the board for a couple of years, was on the executive committee, and um, we had a terrific executive director um, who's still in town and works for a, a different industry now, and she was a wonderful, wonderful person. Um, and she resigned to go take another opportunity, and uh, two of the board members sort of approached me and said, you know, hey, you would be perfect for this role. You grew up in this industry. You've, you've seen it and done it like so many others. You know, you have an aptitude for it. Um, we think you enjoy it, and I did. I very much enjoyed um, what we were doing at the TLC from a volunteer perspective. You know, why don't you consider strongly doing this? And I'll tell you that I took, I took a, a trip to Scotland that year. It was first vacation in many years for me. And on the top of a, of a mountain uh, called the Quadding in the Hebrides of Scotland, I decided I was ready for something different. Right. And I came off of that mountain. I flew back home and uh, I came home and I resigned that day. Um, okay. and, and the company was extremely supportive. Um, uh, they were they were really wonderful. And, and still to this day, I speak to that ownership group almost every other day. And um, I got the opportunity to start here uh, on the staff level um, as as the CEO. Um, I walked in the door and there was a uh, and of course, I know the staff. I knew the staff here um, because of my board role. Um, and we made some changes immediately. Um, there were some big changes that we wanted and it's big things and little things. One of the little things was like we build for dues. We're a membership organization. We're privately funded. Um, we don't receive tax dollars and don't want them. Um, mm -hmm. We would bill in January for our, our annual dues. That didn't make any sense to me. That's the worst time of business for everybody. <laughs> why, don't, why don't we bill in March, you know? Um, by the way, that, that screwed me this go around because we did right before the pandemic. So that, that really worked out for me. Um, my first week on the job, and that was uh, 2012, was Taste of Savannah, which the organization had been doing for about 15 years. And I stood in the back of the room, um, and it was literally my first day as CEO. And I stood in the back of the room, and I watched that event, and I said, we will never do this event like this again. 
Right. And in my mind, it was it was parasitic fundraising. So yeah. what we did is we convinced our, our restaurant members to comp out their food right. and time. And then we sold expensive tickets to the rest of our membership who went and ate that food. Yeah. And then we charged people tickets to buy drinks. Right. It, that's parasitic fundraising. And, right. you know, it is it is not the TLC's mission to drive business to the community. That is not our role. That's Visit Savannah's role, and they do it beautifully. We're on the operations side of the industry. But I, I, I believed then, and since hopefully have been proven right, that we could convert that event to be the basis of something very, very different that would have three goals. Um, it would be something that would drive economic development in our community, that it would drive dollars to local nonprofits and charities that meant something to our organization, whether they were connected directly to tourism or not. And third, it would be something that Savannians would be proud of. Right. And that is what founded the Savannah Food and Wine Festival. And now it is one of the region's largest festivals. It has done over $500,000 to profits, uh, nonprofits and charities in the Savannah market. Um, we're responsible for about close to $9 million in new spending in November. And that was one of the reasons we picked November, to tell you the truth. Um, if we were after ticket sales, we'd have put it in March and April. Um, right. November was a softer month. Um, I was living downtown when we started um, uh, Food and Wine, and I can tell you Rock and Roll Marathon would come in the weekend before, and I would go to the liquor store and then to Home Depot, and I would board up the house and, and, and drink, drink what I got at the liquor store. And when all the healthy people left, I would come back out of the house and want to have a party. And that's really, that's why Savannah Food and Wine Festival follows rock and roll. This is a party for all of us. It is not geared any more or less to visitors. I understand we're the Tourism Leadership Council, but our ticket sales to this day show that at least half is locals. And, right. and we work really hard to make sure that happens because we wanted something that our friends and neighbors can come out to and have a great time and smile and enjoy this beautiful city. That's why we do locations all around the week. I promise this is not a commercial for Savannah Food and Wine. Um, <laughs> but it was the intent of what we did, and we were successful. Um, um, by, by all accounts, we grow the festival a little bit each year. It is not a huge moneymaker to the organization. It's not supposed to be. We didn't build it that way. You know, we make enough from the festival that we can invest into the next festival. Um, it, it's, not, it's, it's not the revenue driver for the organization. It's not even in the top three um, revenue for the, for the organization, but it's important. And it, it, it's, it's been a labor of love. And it's been something that, that we could enjoy together as a community. And I love coming to Taste of Savannah and seeing my neighbors. It just, it makes me so happy. And I can buy them a drink because the drinks are free. There you go. Yeah, I like, uh, I, I can certainly vouch for the barbecue or the barbecue night at Food and Wine Festival. It's tremendous. But I do want to ask you one more question as we're talking about TLC. And that's sure. the last, certainly the last 15 years, probably the last 20 years, we've seen a, an explosion in terms of Savannah as a tourism destination. I mean, anyway, we can point to 10 different things. We can point to the book. We can point to Paula Dean. We can point to just all these different things that have really upped our profile. But as our profile is upped, so has uh, the number of hotels, the number of rooms, the expectations of the guests. If you had to kind of put your finger on where you think the TLC has made the biggest impact since you came on or even even further back, where do you think you guys make the biggest impact uh, for the community and, and yeah, for the community? 
That's a really good question and a difficult one. Um, I hope that we're never in a position where we have to hang our hat on one thing. Um, right. Because we don't do just one thing. In the time that I have been here, the resources of the TLC have absolutely been the determining factor of some people being able to open their business, mm-hmm. some people to keep their business open. Um, it has been a driving force, not because of my leadership, but because of the board's leadership and their care and concern about the future of our community to some, I think if, if people really paid attention to some surprising positions on critical issues, um, we, we did not and do not support the notion of a cruise ship terminal. Mm-hmm. Um, we, that was public. Um, I will tell you that uh, last week um, we issued a letter to the local delegation in the uh, House and Senate that very clearly said we do not support the notion of gambling or gaming in the city of Savannah. Yeah, casino gambling, right? Yeah, that's not something we support. We don't offer a moral objection to it. We don't think it's right for this market. We don't think that's who we are. Um, and and I think that that it's I think that would surprise a lot of people. Um, we did right. it in writing. We didn't publish it in the paper. We did it in writing directly to the legislators so they knew where we stood and why. Right. Um, and obviously there's, there's more reasons to, to just uh, uh, to, the, to the opposition of that in Savannah. Um, I, I, you know, at, uh, a couple of years ago, we supported a, a short-term mor- moratorium on hotel development. Yeah, you were part of the overlay um, map, right? You guys worked in partnership with some others on helping develop that. Plan. Well, here's a here's a here's a fact about that, and this is I, I think this is something that's extraordinarily important for for anybody in this community to understand, especially as as it relates to what and how the Tourism Leadership Council were. Yes, we were very much a part of the overlay map, which is what decides what size hotels can go where, or mm-hmm. which areas of town are prohibited at all and or totally from any type of development, even if it's quote small scale hotel development. So when we got handed that document, um, and there was a nasty fight to get there, I I don't mind admitting that. Um, We found out about it on a Friday night. Um, uh, an MPC, the MPC uh, scheduled an agenda item at 6 p.m. on a Friday night. They released it saying that the following Tuesday they would hear this ordinance, which was a drastic change in what was going on as far as where development could happen. And we were not included in the conversation at all. Well, frankly, all hell broke loose over the weekend. I, I mean, people were furious. We were furious. Our stakeholders were furious. The industry was furious. We were about to be blindsided by something where truly we are the stakeholders, and we were totally ignored. Right. And in fact, it was purposefully done. That later came out in the session. So in other groups, were were, were um, had worked with the city to create this document, which had never seen the light of day before with us. We threw a temper tantrum, so did other business organizations, a halt was put to it, and they gave us this document, um, and now the city was in a very defensive posture. And this was a different administration, it was a different city attorney, everybody was different back then. Right. Uh, but this was just a few years ago. And they gave us a document that had a prohibition on 104 acres in the immediate historic district. Okay. Mm-hmm. We handed them back a document that had a prohibition on 260 acres. Right. So you were more aggressive. We were more restrictive. We were far more restrictive on development than any other organization had put forth. I don't know if because those organizations felt like they couldn't go too far or we'd lose our minds or anything else like that. But what we did 
is we met collectively over weeks and weeks and weeks, and we walked everything in the historic district. And, and we disagreed with how the city and some of those partners were going about determining whether or not something should be there. So I'll give you an example, Columbia Square, where the Kehoe House is. Mm-hmm. They said that it was it was capable for development for um, uh, small hotels, which is up to 75 rooms, because, quote, half of the square was commercial. Well, that's <laughs> true. If you look on that square, that's not a residential square anymore. And it hasn't been for a very, very long time, by the way. You've got Davenport House there. You've got some other businesses there. You've got the Kehoe House there, the beautiful bed and breakfast there. So most of uh, if, if most uh, majority plus one is commercial businesses. And so they said, yeah, you can put a small hotel there. And we said, no, you can't look at the scale of these buildings. Yeah. You can't put it. You would change the character of the building by putting or the, of, of the of the area, the square. If you did that. And, and I think it well, I know it did. It surprised the the opposite side, the the opponents, which are not opponents. Right. We were far more restrictive than 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 we were. And, and, and here's part of the reason why nobody has a monopoly on their care of Savannah or their love of Savannah or the future of Savannah. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'll also say if, if this industry is what some people accuse it of, which is robber barons and we only care about profit. Well, if that were true, then let's let's assume that's true. Then we're more vested in the future of this town than anybody else monetarily. Nobody has more cash on the line in downtown Savannah than the tourism industry. Nobody. Nowhere anywhere close. Twenty seven thousand jobs, three billion dollars in spending millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in assets, whether it's a hotel, a bed and breakfast, a restaurant, an attraction, a tour, nobody is more protective of our future if you're just looking at money, which is not the way to look at anything in the tourism industry. We are vested in the success of this community. It is not a case of residents care and business don't. Nope, you called that one wrong. That's Mm -hmm. incorrect. Mm -hmm. This is our home. This is where our children go to school. And that's one thing I'd like to see changed over the next couple of years is this notion of residence or business. No, wait, we we are residents. We live here. We pay the same taxes that everybody else does. In fact, we pay more because of the businesses, so on and so forth. And we love it here. This is our home, too. And I think for the most part that everybody does real, realize that we have great relationships now after some strenuous ones over time with historic Savannah foundation and with the downtown neighborhood association. And, and I'm thankful every day that organizations like that exist. Thank God we have a DNA, a downtown neighborhood association that cares what's going on in their community and cares what Savannah looks like and cares what safety is in the, in that environment because downtown is important and to act like it's not, is an absurd misunderstanding of basic economics. Again, you are listening to a conversation with Savannah Tourism Industry Insider Michael Owens. We interrupt this interview to invite you to check out our latest digital initiative, Savannah's Town Square, on Facebook. Obviously, you enjoy this podcast, and many of you subscribe to our morning newsletter and watch or attend our monthly Brews and Views public forums. Savannah's Town Square is your chance to sound off. Every weekday, I post a talking point on Savannah's Town Square, a Facebook group page. Those who join the group are then free to engage with me and other members and discuss the topic. 
and I'm liking comment sections and social media channels, we don't allow trolls and other mean-spirited posters to ruin what is meant to be a place for earnest, civil, and insightful dialogue. Go to Facebook today, search for Savannah's Town Square, and click the Join button. We'll get you in on the conversation. Now, here's the rest of the Difference Makers interview with Michael Ellis. Let's turn and spend the balance talking about the, the pandemic. And we were talking before I hit record and you talked about the whole idea that the depth of the damage and can we come back? Will we come back? And maybe that's, maybe that's not looking at it from a, uh, from a truly transparent lens. Can you kind of talk a little bit about the depth of the damage sure. and, and go from here? It's, I mean, at this point it's, it's, and I'm careful. I try to be careful with words. It's totally incalculable. Mm-hmm. I, you know, we, we're not going to know for quite some time, really, the negative impacts uh, of of this pandemic on, and then the ripple effect of those negative impacts for years to come. I can put a number on some of it now. Um, in April, we had six percent occupancy downtown. Six percent. Last April, that would have been ninety percent. Yes, eighty. Yeah, it's mil- it's it's millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars just gone. And you know, you have to remember that, and this is really important. And this is true for our whole industry. Um, our product disappears immediately. In other words, if if this is the difference, it's an important difference between our industry and let's say retail. In retail, I can buy five thousand widgets, and if I don't sell a widget today, I can sell a widget tomorrow. Right, and if I don't sell it that day, I, I I can keep this in perpetuity until I sell all five thousand of my widgets. In in our business, if I don't sell that room tonight, I can't go back in time and sell that room from last night. Right, it is it is lost business the moment it's a new day. The same is true with tours. I can't if I miss three tours tonight, three customers tonight, I can't go back in time and recoup that money. It's not possible. Same with restaurants. If I don't sell this plate of dinner tonight, I do not have the opportunity to sell it tomorrow. That is sunk cost, period. So the ramifications of that, you know, for many, the damage is truly already done. If we turn the switch magically back on tomorrow and all business at the same volume, at the same price point returned, there will be many in this town who will not make it because the damage has already been done. And that for me, it's extremely emotional for me because there are a lot of these folks who I have known my whole existence in this town who are honest, hardworking. They care about their team. They care about their community. They give gift cards every time there's a dinner for so-and-so's group. They support it, and they're not going to make it. Yeah. And, and you know, do, do we ever recover from that? No. Do we recover as a market? Yes. This is not the end. COVID-19 is not the end of Savannah, our businesses, and everybody. But for some, no, they'll, they'll, they'll never get up off the mat. And and that that is that's awful because again, you know, put on your humanity hat again. Don't view these things as business. These are people's livelihoods. Right. This is how they put food on their family's table. This is how they, yeah, this is how they uh, can afford a spouse deciding to go back to school and change jobs, like my mother did. <laughs> these are real lives that we're dealing with here, and I. I 
I bristle at those who just, you know, well, these businesses, are, they've made money for years, they'll be fine. You just have no conception of that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's heartless. And I, I, I frankly, I, I think it's morally repugnant um, to, to assume that you understand the personal situation of anybody else, especially financially. I have friends that have special needs children, and it is far more expensive for them to raise their children than others. Mm-hmm. You don't know what's going on in somebody's life. Um, and, and unfortunately, we're going to have some victims to this thing that are victims not because of a diagnosis. Right. And, and that's, that's, that's the reality of it. And it's, it's incredibly depressing. And it's in, because many of these folks are my friends and they're my family. And um, there are others that are going to recover. It will be long and hard. Uh, I have reminded some folks that during the Great Depression, it took us seven years to return to the business that we were enjoying in 2007. Seven years. This economic devastation is at least now 13 times larger than the devastation of both the Great recession and 9-11 combined. We have a long road to hold. Now the question is, is it a V shape or is it a U shape? Um, Listen, that's, I can't tell you um, except through my own experience in this market during difficult financial times, and it is a wide U. And I think that's what we're looking at. Are we seeing occupancies increase in the city? Yeah, we are Um, at half the rate. Mm -hmm. And that's hugely important. Rate is, you know, if, if you have the same occupancy but half the rate, that's fifty percent of the income. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I would ask your listener. I'd ask your listeners uh, how many of you who own businesses can operate at fifty percent of the income for months on end. Right. All right. So how about fifty percent of the rate and fifty percent of the occupancy? Again, I'd ask your listeners which of you who own business can now say we'll reduce our business by fifty percent and reduce the income by the fifty percent of customers remaining by fifty percent. Twenty five percent. Now, we're not alone in this. That's a, and certainly, I mean, there's there's very few business sectors that haven't been affected in some way. But it is true to say that we are twice as negatively affected as any other economic sector in the United States economy. That is a fact. So it is it's going to be a slow punch back. Um, you know, you have to remember that every facet of this industry Every restaurant, every hotel, every bed and breakfast, every tour that's been offered is an important part of the success we enjoyed just six months ago. And so to lose some of those pieces on a permanent situation, well, that's, those are little more setbacks that slowly we'll have to recover and fill those gaps. Um, We've got plenty of really well-run lodging facilities and and restaurants who even today are not cash flowing at all. Right. And, you know, that that, that is is not sustainable. It's not sustainable. And I think everybody knows that, and hopefully everybody understands there is an end to this at some point, but it's very difficult to see where the end is. And no one can predict that. But it'll be a slugfest to get to get back to where we were, and it will absolutely take years. Absolutely take years. Right. Yeah. And hope that we can. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. Uh, all things being equal, 
let's and it, things aren't equal because we're seeing obviously we're we're seeing surges in this in this disease right now and it's it's not necessarily striking the same demographic it was before and it's not causing quite the disruption it was before uh but it's still there and then of course there's the thought that it it could really rear back in the fall but let's just assume for a second we get past this what kind of what is going to be the key in terms of whether it's support or whether it's just you know maybe the the lenders being a little bit more flexible what is going to be the key to kind of to for lack of a better word, prop up the industry to where when it does return that you can start seeing a, a, a viable business model again. Yeah, that's good. It's a really good question. Um, depends on, it depends on which particular sort of outlook you want to look at and say, are we trying to make people whole and then move forward or are we move, move, trying to move forward from the quote-unquote point of recovery moving mm-hmm. forward? So if you're trying to make people whole retroactively for the losses they've already had, well, that means more money from somewhere. And I'm, I'm not about to speak to where I think that should, if I think uh, money should come from somewhere, whether that's, um, you know, grant programs, so on and so forth. We've, we've got a pretty hefty, no, it's not pretty. We have an enormous price tag for the efforts that, that the Congress has undertaken um, right. uh, so far. Um, will there be more? I, you know, I, I have absolutely no idea, no, no better idea than, than uh, perhaps you do. But um, Moving forward, once we get to the point, what I said, the, the beginning point of recovery, in other words, the disease is reasonably managed by either herd immunity or or a vaccine or a treatment that is uh, far, far more effective. And by the way, I think it should be noted that treatments are far more effective than they were, which is part of, I think, uh, and, and, and I believe I heard Dr. Toomey say this the other day, the reason that we have um, a, a lower death death toll than we've had in the past is we're getting better at that and we're recognizing that ventilators is not something you want to do early. There's been a lot of learning curve involved in this and then they'll they'll continue to be for the foreseeable future. Um, It will all be about about driving business and getting the workforce back in place to handle that business. So we will want to market more, not just as a destination, but as a state, we will need, you need two things to come back. And that's confidence in two different ways for a potential customer. And it's true for local customers too. Number one, you've got to have the, the health confidence that there is, there is not an unreasonable danger for going in and visiting that restaurant or that, attraction or that museum, right? So that's all about our feelings related to COVID-19 and any threat that that contagion poses to an individual or their family. The other side of it is the consumer confidence, which is based on personal their personal economy. In other words, I can afford to go right. visit or go to that restaurant rather than eating ramen noodles tonight um, with with talks of, you know, God knows what's going to happen in the winter or in the fall. Is there a second spike? Is this the second spike? I don't know. But certainly I know for my family that we're being extra careful in our spending. Yes. And and that's it's, that's a decision that my wife and I, we talked about early on. If I don't know what the future holds. Um, uh, I work in an industry that is about to get impacted more gravely than I think we can ever imagine. 
We're a nonprofit, or, and I'm speaking about me personally. We're a nonprofit organization. At what point can our members not afford to maintain this organization that they have built? Yeah. We have to be re- we have to be realistic about that. So, you know, in in my family situation, when my five year old needs shoes, we can get him new shoes. I'm just probably not going to buy two pair right now. I'm going to buy one, and. And that is me being, hopefully, trying to be a responsible parent and responsible husband and my wife a responsible wife. Um, But we've got to feel good about our personal financial situation for me to go and take a long weekend somewhere. So there's those two factors that are extraordinarily important. And we as an organization and we as an industry – we can help control the first factor by taking safeguards very, very seriously, by making sure that our restaurateurs are wearing masks, that our hotel employees are wearing masks, so on and so forth, that we're being very obvious to the customer about the precautions that we're taking. On the other side of it, which is potentially just as important, that economic confidence side of it, yeah, there's nothing I can do about that. I can't change your stock portfolio. I can't change your, your spending habits. You know, I, I can make it less expensive to come to Savannah, which certainly the market has dictated with the low rates and so on and so forth. Um, but that's a larger issue that I, I, I can't affect and the industry can't affect. So there's, as, as usual, I think in life, there's some things I can do to help me and help myself and help my family. Family and help my business and help my industry. And there are other things that are outside of my, my hands that I have to accept and then figure out what's the best way for me to deal with those as, as they, those problems that I can't, I can't control. How do I deal with them as they arise um, effectively as I can? Just a matter of time. Well, speaking of time, Michael, I think we've now had the longest difference maker ever. And I think we can. Well, probably- that's what happens when you talk to me in an afternoon. <laughs> but I, we could talk for another hour, but uh, but we'll do it. Uh, we'll do it over a glass of wine somewhere instead. But thank you, as always, for being willing to come on and share some insights. And it's always a pleasure talking to you. No, thanks for having me, Adam. It's always great to chat with you. do it for the July 10th episode of Difference Makers. Thanks to our guest, Michael Owens, and to our presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Tap into the Difference Makers archives anytime on your favorite podcast app to hear interviews with more of Savannah's community leaders, such as Coastal Georgia Health Director Dr. Lawton Davis, new Savannah Morning News Editor Raina Cash, and Savannah Mayor Van Johnson. Difference Makers is a production of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. Our next episode will post July 24th. On behalf of myself and producer Zach Dennis, thank you for listening. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.